The reading is Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind also was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. After this I kept looking, and behold, another one, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had a large And it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them. And three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him. And myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were opened. Then I kept looking. Because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking, I kept looking until the beast was slain, and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away. But an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me. And the visions in my mind kept alarming me. I approached one of those who were standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. 
These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, for all ages to come. Then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze and which devoured, crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And the meaning of the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn which came up and before which three of them fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts and which was larger in appearance than its associates. I kept looking. And that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them until the ancients of days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one. And the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones, and will subdue three kings. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will sit for judgment, and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, And destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. At this point in the at this point the revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me, and my face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself. What a glorious truth that our God is the Ancient of Days, who really does control all things, whether we like it or not, whether we live like it or not, he is in control. And he does all things well. He does all things with your best interest in mind. That's sometimes hard for us to trust and believe. But the scriptures make it clear that this is who our God is. Hopefully Daniel 7 will serve to help all of us instill In all of us, a greater trust and hope and belief in this God who is the Ancient of Days and His Son, the Son of Man. The dreams and the visions and the prophecies that we find in this book of Daniel were given six centuries before the birth of Jesus. And God's people, 600 years before the birth of Jesus, were living in exile And their lives were a mess. They had almost been completely wiped out by the Babylonians. They had been taken into captivity. 
But there were a few faithful men left. Daniel has shown that to us in the first six chapters. They have survived re-education and indoctrination, the fiery furnace fiasco for Daniel's friends, and Daniel pulled an all-nighter in the lion's den. When we come to chapter 7, we're dealing with a a different genre, different issues being exposed or in a different way would be a more accurate way to state it. And there are pitfalls galore posed when we come to Daniel 7 through 12. There are all sorts of mistakes that we can make when interpreting these chapters. Lifting them straight out of the text without understanding the setting and the context into which these words were originally written, is one of the ways we can completely misunderstand and thus misapply the truths that are here. Anyone who would rush headlong into the text and then immediately apply it to themselves or others has basically lost their mind. And if you read some of the people who have treated Daniel in that way, that's what you'll come away thinking. They've lost their mind, or I've lost mine. So as we come to consider the remaining chapters here in the book of Daniel, we want to do so with a flashing sign each time we come to the text. Tread carefully. Danger ahead. Because we could get into trouble if we aren't careful. My hope is that we will tread carefully And benefit exponentially as a result. The best way to understand the book of Daniel is to first read what he wrote. And ask why he wrote these things. And ask who he wrote it to. Who he wrote it for. And then deal with the question, what did his original audience understand? What would they have understood by what he wrote and what he spoke to them. Every part of Daniel is useful, beneficial for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, as well as for the encouragement, edification, and growth of God's people. So we must bear in mind as we continue in Daniel, in this second half of the book, chapters 7 through 12, That it is, as I mentioned, a different genre than the first six chapters. We're dealing now with, okay, hold on to your seat, apocalyptic literature. It's a whole different beast altogether. No pun intended. (laughs) The principles that we use for interpreting a story in the Gospels differs from that of interpretation of a New Testament letter or from historical accounts. And in the same way, when we come to apocalyptic literature, we must take into account the type of literature that it is in order that we might interpret it and apply it appropriately. In Daniel 1 through 6, for the most part, the stories are written in third person. Somebody is narrating what's happening for us. But in 7 through 12, it's almost entirely written in the first person. It's Daniel talking directly to his original recipients and thus to us. 
And that changes how we read it and it affects how we interpret it. One through six are literal stories. Chapters one through six are literal history. And chapters seven through 12 are dreams and visions that did literally happen. But we have to approach it differently. One of the keys to handling apocalyptic literature is to follow a process. I did have written down to follow a simple process, but the more I looked at it, the less simple it looked. What was its immediate application to the original recipients of the letter? It's a great question for us to ask when we come to apocalyptic literature. What is its application for those in the nearer future, though not yet born? What about the next generation after Daniel and the generation after that, or the generation of Christ? What is its application for us as we look back over history and what was prophesied through Daniel and how it applies to us today? And what is the application for the future of all of us, those during Daniel's age, those during the age of Christ, and during Christ's time on earth and during our lives? What is the future for all of us? So coming up to speed to Daniel chapter 7, we haven't been in Daniel in some time, so a brief, very brief review. Daniel is writing to a people in exile. Jerusalem has been conquered. The temple has been ransacked. The holy city and the holy place were decimated. The holy people, God's people, were scared and assumed that God had deserted them. Daniel is writing to remind them of the sovereignty of God over all things. And he tells them point blank that what has happened to them has happened as discipline from God for idolatry and rebellion against him. Daniel says, right from the outset in chapter 1, the Babylonian Empire only ruled because God allowed it to. And so Daniel writes, encouraging the people to remain faithful to God, even in the midst of their suffering, or especially in the midst of their suffering. And he makes clear that God's people who remain faithful to him will be secure in him. We can summarize it this way. Daniel is teaching us two main things. God rules in the big events of world history, both the good and the bad. And God rules in the little details of our lives, the good and the bad. That's it. That's what Daniel's teaching us. Everybody ready to go home? (laughs) If we can take that away, I think we benefit from the passage. We must keep that in mind. That was the theme of chapters 1 through 6. We must keep it in mind because it's the same message in chapters 7 through 12 through the rest of the book. However, God uses a different means to communicate the message to his people. He uses visions and dreams. And they are not to be taken lightly. If my kids are telling me something that happened yesterday, I am prone to listen closer than when they try to tell me what they dreamed about last night. We can't approach the Word of God that way. Notice how Daniel is affected when he receives this dream or vision. Verse 15 of chapter 7. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me. 
and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. My thoughts were greatly alarming me, and my face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself. So let's look at the vision itself, as told by Daniel. I've split it into three points just to help us follow along. Point number one, the first eight verses, beasts from the sea. Verses 9 through 14, court is in session. And verses 15 to the end of the chapter, 15 to 28, favor for the saints. Beasts from the sea, court is in session, favor for the saints. And really so much of 15 through 28, verses 15 through 28, is commentary on verses 1 through 8. So a lot of that gets front-loaded into the first point. Beasts from the sea. Daniel 7, 1. This all happened as if the dreams and visions aren't confusing enough. Daniel begins by saying, what I'm about to say happened during chapter 5. Which is what he tells us in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. That's when Daniel saw this. We've been looking at a chronological history up until this point. It's not chronological from here on out, but Daniel does give us somewhere to hang our hat so that we know where this is happening. So he writes his dream down and he is relating it. Verse 2, I was looking in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea and the great beasts were coming up from the sea different from one another. What are the four winds of heaven? What, are, what is Daniel talking about? This phrase is used all throughout the scriptures to describe the whole of earth, or the whole of earth and heaven. The, the four winds encompasses every direction. We can think of it as the four corners of the earth, or north, south, east, and west. Even G- Jesus uses the phrase in that way. Matthew 24, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory and he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. That's the picture that Daniel sees and is thus painting for us right from the outset. It's the, the entire earth is stirred up. There is a chaos that is happening. It's worth noting that when the phrase four winds is mentioned in the Bible, it's usually in reference to a remarkable, unusual, or devastating event. Events that are typically being reported by the prophets of God and usually in the form of a vision. God is not right from the outset, God speaking to Daniel in this dream, God is not promising Daniel that everything's going to be fine during the exile or even after the exile. God is saying that heaven itself is stirring up chaos on earth in the shape of these four kingdoms. Now, think about that in contrast to the dreams and vision folks out there today where it's all about blessings and peace. These these are not the dreams and visions that God was giving to his prophet here. 
They're not about blessings and peace, but about chaos that was, had come and was coming. God is saying to Daniel here that there will be no lasting peace on earth until his kingdom is finally ushered in. In essence, this is what God is saying. And many of you have heard me say this time and again. Things are going to get worse before they get better. Things at minimum are very likely to get worse before they get better. Peace throughout the earth is not a possibility as long as men and women refuse to worship God. When we watch the evening news or read the morning paper, we must remember that God is in control. As one nation rises and another one falls, this God sits enthroned in the heavens. He is sovereign over all. He's not wondering whether China or Russia will rise up to be the next world superpower or even if our own great nation will soon fall. Nor is he surprised by the plans of wicked men and women. He is sovereign and in control of everything. So who are these four beasts? Four great beasts were coming up from the sea. And they were all different, Daniel says. Who are they? Look down to verse 17. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. They are the four kings of Daniel chapter 2. You remember Nebuchadnezzar's dream. The kings were represented there by four medals and a statue. And here they're represented by four beasts. These four beasts came about because of the winds of heaven. We have to be careful not to miss that point. If the great sea is a picture of the earth, then what we're seeing is a picture of the sovereign God raising up these four kings and kingdoms from among the peoples of the earth. In other words, God is in control of what has happened. God is in control of what is happening. And God is in control of what will happen. Nothing happens unless he wills it from his heavenly throne. The beasts were all different from one another. There's a lion that has wings of an eagle. There's a lopsided bear with three ribs in its mouth. There's a leopard with four wings and four heads. And then an unnamed beast with iron teeth and ten plus horns. Let's consider them a little bit closer before moving on. These beasts, a lion with eagle's wings, verse 4. The rest of the description says, I kept looking until its wings were plucked. And it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind also was given to it. This beast, the first one, corresponds to the head of gold in Daniel chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar's dream. The Babylonian empire. How do we know this? The symbol of the Babylonian Empire was a lion with eagle's wings. So while we may read Daniel chapter 7, and that's not immediately clear to us, we don't understand that reference until more details are given to us, but the original recipients of Daniel's prophecy knew exactly who this beast was. 
They were aware that the symbol of the Babylonians was a lion with eagle's wings. Now, what about the significance of standing on two feet and having a human mind? The beast was eventually tamed, becoming less ferocious and more compassionate, not unlike King Nebuchadnezzar. We saw in his life as he appeared to have been converted toward the end of his reign by the persistent witness of Daniel. Even eventually saying, it has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar said, and his dominion is from generation to generation. A lion with eagle's wings. Secondly, a bear with three ribs, a lopsided bear with three ribs in his mouth, corresponding to the Medo-Persian Empire of Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2. And you're probably wondering, what do the three ribs represent? Me too. Who knows? It surely has significance, but it remains a mystery to most serious scholars. Well, there's all kinds of ideas out there. But if we limit our selection to serious scholars... It's basically a mystery. They're not the point of the vision. They're not a missing puzzle piece for understanding Daniel or Daniel chapter 7. The point for us is given to us at the end of the verse as we read that this lopsided bear with three ribs in its mouth was a beast that devoured everything in its path. Third beast, a leopard with four wings of a bird and four heads. Twice the wings of the lion, right? Twice as swift. Four heads, its power stretched across the four corners of the earth. Going back to Daniel chapter 2, corresponding to Nebuchadnezzar's dream there. This is Alexander the Great who conquered the world with such rapidity that he ruled the majority of it by the time he was in his mid-20s. And the fourth, mysterious beast with huge iron teeth and tin horns and a little horn with the eyes of a man speaking pompous words. Again, connecting to Daniel chapter 2 and Nebuchadnezzar's dream there, the Roman Empire is portrayed. And we're given a little bit more detail about this beast than the others, though the mystery is probably larger than the others. What is significant about the ten horns? Well, Daniel tells us in verse 20, the meaning of the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn which came up and before which the three of them fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts, which was larger in appearance than its associates. There were other kings, other little kingdoms that branched out. A horn is a symbol of power in the Bible, and it seems like what Daniel is prophesying here is that the Roman Empire will ultimately fall, which it did, being divided into a number of different kingdoms, which happened. Now, it's unclear what or who exactly the ten horns are. Really, it it depends on when the commentator lived, who they think they are. Uh, You can read commentators from a few centuries ago, and they think that those Uh, Ten horns 
are represented during their time. If you read a commentator from last year, they can name ten countries in the world today that they're convinced are represented here in Daniel chapter 7. I'm convinced that I have no idea who the ten horns are and that they are all wrong. (laughs) And that's all I have to say about that. The little horn, even. which The point here concerns this little horn that appears... From nowhere, and it receives a little more attention again in verse 25. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. He sounds, this little horn sounds a lot like the person described by the Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians that Luke referenced for the prayer meeting. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come, the end of time will not come, unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. And this is where the similarity comes in. Who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Now, this fourth creature is a difficult one. It's a mind-boggling one. There's really nothing to compare it to. Even even Daniel is struggling with how to describe it. He says it's dreadful, terrifying, extremely strong. I'm reading from verse 7. It large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down everything. It was different from all the other beasts. And it had ten horns. And then another horn. But again, there's this striking similarity between this beast and the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had in Daniel chapter 2, where verse 40 says, Then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron. Inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things, so like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. And if we look back at history, this is actually how the Roman Empire advanced across the world and extended the empire of Alexander the Great. We should notice and seek to understand that each beast, from the first to the second to the third to the fourth, was more ferocious than the last, more destructive than the one it replaced. They increased in dominion and violence and fear. And they all represented, according to verse 17 of chapter 7, different kings and kingdoms. Now, defining them and describing them as kings and kingdoms, and not just beasts, is possible only if we stick close to the text. We keep from getting it too wrong if we stick close to what Daniel has actually said. The scriptures often give us little interpretive clues, which we ought to be on the lookout for. And with that said, if the four kingdoms are the same kingdoms as in Daniel chapter 2, then we understand they are then the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. Our takeaway is that there is not an empire, good or evil, in all of world history that God did not permit to have authority. There has not been a king a president or a prime minister, good or evil, in power except by the authority of God Almighty. This is the message that God wanted, pardon, that Daniel wanted the exiles to understand. 
God wanted them to understand it too, but he's using Daniel. It's why Daniel is hammering it home again and again and again and again. Everything that is happening in this world, in Daniel's world and in our world, is happening by God's design. He's orchestrating it all for the good of his people and for the glory of his name. We have to be careful when we come to these visions of Daniel that we don't get trapped in the quicksand of horns and teeth and heads and wings and ribs or any of the other stuff. Daniel, first and foremost, is trying to bring comfort to a broken people. He's reminding them that God has not left them. God is in full control of past empires and present empires and even future empires. The real terror behind Daniel's dream here in chapter 7 is that things are going to get worse for coming generations. That's what Daniel sees in the vision. That's the real terror. But the real comfort behind Daniel's dreams is that God will still be in control even then. Even as things get worse, no matter how bad it could get, God remains in control and he fights on behalf of his people. That's the beast from the sea, verses 1 through 8. Daniel keeps looking. You may have noticed that refrain again and again throughout the chapter. I kept looking. I kept looking. Now he sees that court is in session. If Daniel chapter 7 ended with verse 8, we would be left without hope. None at all. All that we would know would be an endless cycle of chaos and death and misery. But verses 9 through 14 give us the ray of light that verses 1 through 8 left us longing for. A promise from God. A promise from God for his people as they live in the chaos of the great sea. While humans clamor for earthly power, there is one ruling on his throne. The real relief in verse 9 is the ancient of days. And there is real relief in verse 9 as the Ancient of Days appears in Daniel's dream. I kept looking until thrones were set up. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. Notice that God is seated here. He has no need to fly around the world conquering every nation. He's not huddled over a map of the world, surrounded by his commanding officers, wondering what his next move should be. The Ancient of Days took his seat. He reveals himself to us to be on his throne as he has always been. While these four beasts wage war across the earth, the Ancient of Days sits on his throne ruling sovereignly over all. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. In case there's any doubt about the power and the judgment of God, we can look here and see what Daniel saw. Then I kept looking, verse 11. Because of the sound of the boastful words, that that little horn, I kept looking because of what he was saying, because of the blasphemy that he was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given 
to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, dominion was taken away but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. A little peek into the future. And all the pompous words of this little horn mean absolutely nothing in the face of a single word from God. He speaks a word and the world is created. He speaks a word and the end of the age will come. He speaks a word and all his enemies will lie defeated at his feet. Martin Luther said it this way, and we'll sing it later on. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One, one little word shall fail him. Here is Jesus. In all his glory. And it's not, an, it's not another kingdom as much as it is a king. It's a person. All the kingdoms of the earth will pass away. Only the kingdom of God and of his Christ will live on eternally. And Jesus won this kingdom, not by war or political maneuvering, but by his own sacrificial death. He didn't send young men out to die so that he could gain power. He died himself on the cross to win our salvation. He humbled himself in order to raise us up. There is no king like him. There is no ruler like him. His kingdom will dwarf all human kingdoms as he reigns from north to south, from east to west, eternally. The problem for us is that too often we spend all our time trying to work out the visions and the secret code and puzzles to unlock them. When the point of the vision is not the vision, the point of the vision is to elevate this ancient of days who is seated on his throne. The point of the vision is to point us to hoping in the Son of Man. The point is that we leave this text worshiping Jesus, glorifying in him. Glorifying him because of his work. Determined to serve him. Whatever way the wind blows in our lives. Because in an uncertain world, the Son of Man is the only certainty. In a world without hope, the Son of Man is the only one who fills us with hope. In a world without direction, the Son of Man is in full control of human history. In a world full of loss, the Son of Man is the only one who can save. The beasts of this world will come and go, but the Son of Man will stand forever and ever. This kingdom of Jesus is like no other kingdom before it, and there will be no kingdom after it. He will rule Daniel is prophesying here with all power and all authority and with all righteousness and with all justice and we will all bow at his feet and worship him. Remember Jesus' words in Mark 1, 15? The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. 
With the coming of Jesus came the kingdom to end all kingdoms. With his first human breath, the world changes. And Satan is set on the run, as it were. Now, evil empires still rise and fall. And evil people still prosper. But they are all on borrowed time. When Christ comes again, when the Son of Man returns, it will be to judge the living and the dead, to separate good from evil, righteous from unrighteous, the children of the devil from the children of God. And if you want to know how to escape the darkness of hell, God has made it plain to us. Repent and believe the good news about him. Repent or perish. Repent and be saved. The story of the Bible is not a struggle of good against evil. When Jesus went to the cross, he took upon himself the full wrath of God that was due to the sin of his people. And the sin debt was paid. Evil lost that day. When he arose three days later, it was the verifying sign that God had accepted the sacrificial payment. The righteousness of Jesus, the Son of Man, was credited to our spiritual account. Christ has already won. That is the story of the Bible. It's just that most people struggle to believe it. Struggle to believe his word, to believe him. They refuse to believe God's son. And they're unlikely to believe us. Daniel makes clear here in verse 27... That world history plays out in only one way. That there are no ifs, ands, and buts with regard to where the world is headed. Look at verse 27. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all the dominions will serve and obey him. To be the recipient of what Daniel is prophesying there, to receive this blessing for yourself, requires repentance and faith. It requires an admission of sin against God and his holy character, an admission of your spiritual rebellion, a bowing of the knee, a swearing of allegiance to King Jesus. Then and only then will you find yourself on the side of the favored saints of God. Which is how... Daniel describes believers in that last section. So his beast from the sea, court is in session, and now favor for the saints. Consider the promises from God. Verse 18. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever. For all ages to come. Or verse 22. 
The ancient of days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints, of the highest one. And the time arrived when the saints took possession of their kingdom. Or verse 27 that I just mentioned. The sovereignty and dominion and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. These glorious promises are the takeaway from Daniel chapter 7. Really, by the time we get here in Daniel chapter 7, who cares who the four beasts are? Now, I realize I wasted half your time telling you who they are. But really, does it matter at this point? The point is that they come and go. They will not last forever. They reign for a while, and then they're swallowed up by the next guy, and they become history. We should be far more concerned with who the Son of Man is. We should be more concerned with the fact that the kingdom of God will trample these beasts into the dust and that Jesus will reign forever and ever and we will reign with him forever and ever. That's the promise of God for the children of God. That's the point of Daniel chapter 7. In other words, we do not hope in vain even when it often feels like we do. The kingdoms of this world will pass away. And we will die and become mere history. But we go to the grave as citizens of an eternal and a heavenly kingdom. And the Son of Man will meet us in that kingdom and provide for our every need from that point forward. Now, if these dreams are meant to inspire hope, which is what I'm arguing, if I haven't made that clear, why is Daniel so distressed? Verse 15, my spirit was distressed within me. The visions in my mind kept alarming me. Or verse 28, my thoughts were greatly alarming me. My face grew pale and I kept the matter to myself. Why? Look at verse 21. That horn, that little horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them temporarily. Or verse 25, He will speak out against the Most High, again the little horn, and wear down the saints of the highest one, and he will intend to make alterations in time and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. So though the future is bright and guaranteed for the children of God, it's not yet a reality. We live in a fallen world. That unique phrase for time, times, and half a time, there, there are different people think different things about it. Some would say it's three and a half years, so time would be one year, times would be two years, and half a time would be half a year. It, it probably is better understood that it's happening for a time, and then the multiplicity of times, it seems like it's never going to end, and then half a time, when you least expect it, it comes to an end. Is probably a better way to understand it than the exact three and a half years. The future is bright. The future is full of hope. But we still live here and now. We still must survive in a cruel world where we still suffer grief and sickness and death. In order to get to verses 26 and 27, where the court sits in judgment of the wicked and 
the wicked's dominion is taken away and annihilated and destroyed forever, and the sovereignty and dominion and greatness of all the kingdoms are given to the people of God, and God's kingdom is revealed as an everlasting kingdom, and everyone is worshiping him. In order to get there, we have to pass through verses 23 to 25, which means for us, the world is not getting any better, and it is quite likely going to get worse. Laws will likely continue to be passed that will be increasingly more godless. Real Christians will be pushed further and further into the margins of society. We're in for a rocky ride. Even more so for the next generation. Unless Christ returns, either bodily or spiritually, in revival. However, After reading Daniel chapter 7, we can't stop there. Jesus has already won the war over Satan, sin, and death. But even though the war has been won, the enemy is going down all guns blazing, continuing to attack the saints of God in his retreat, making an all-out last bloody stand, we might say. From a human point of view, It may look like the kingdom of Satan and his minions are beating the kingdom of God and his disciples. But God promised otherwise. And it's clear here in Daniel chapter 7, verse 12, an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. Or verse 25, for a time, times, and half a time. God is in control. Satan and his minions are leashed By a God who is seated, the ancient of days, who is seated on the throne. Made clear in verse 26, the court will sit for judgment. And the dominion will be taken away from the enemy and the wicked. And annihilated and destroyed forever. The real terror behind Daniel's dreams is that things are going to get worse for coming generations. And the real comfort behind Daniel's dreams is that God will still be in control even then. God rules in the big events of world history, the good and the bad. God rules in the little details of our lives, the good and the bad. May he help us to have complete confidence in this Son of Man, clinging to him. If you want to live for something, live for the Son of Man. If you want to die for something, die for the Son of Man. If you want to serve someone, serve the Son of Man. If you want to hope in something, hope in the Son of Man. If you want to look for answers, look to the Son of Man. If you want to find salvation, look to the Son of Man. What should we take home in conclusion? Maybe just this. God has won. Jesus is king. 
and we will worship him for eternity. That's how we must view the world. It's how we must watch the news and read the paper and understand trauma and process catastrophe. Everything should be viewed through the lens of the Son of Man who came and has been given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him because his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. The world may worsen over time until Jesus comes again. At some point, it may even look like or feel like the church is faltering or even finished or that God has deserted us. But God will be where he always is. The ancients of days, seated on his throne, ruling sovereignly over all the events of human history. And then one day, he's going to open up the book of judgment and the Lamb's book of life. And we'll find our names written in one or the other. And we'll be sentenced to hell or to heaven. There will be no appeal that can be made at that time. It will be too late. This ancient of days sees all, knows all, and justice will be done. You can count on it. He sees your sin and mine. That thing you think you've gotten away with will be laid bare before his throne of judgment. There'll be nowhere to run. There'll be nowhere to hide. There'll be no excuses to be offered. His judgment will be full and final and terrible. And his wrath will be poured out in the eternal conscious torment of hell. Unless, unless one stands up. Unless this son of man stands up and speaks in our defense. Unless this son of man steps forward and says to the father, this one's mine. This one I've bought with my own blood. This one turned from their sin and trusted in faith. This one is saved from your wrath. And then the door to glory will swing open and we enter gratefully, worshiping at the feet of Jesus. This son of man, he's the only way out for us. The way, the truth, and the life in this life and the next. And then, no matter what life on this earth had been like for each one of us or all of us collectively, we will say one to another, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we come again thanking you for your word. Feeling at least in some measure the sense of need for you to press home the spiritual truths. God, continue convincing us of the glory that belongs to your Son, the Son of Man. God, we thank you, the Ancient of Days that you are seated and that you are effortlessly reigning and ruling and that you're doing so for our good. 
We take great confidence in that. God, give us grace that our confidence might increase in you, that our hope might grow in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.